This is an ABC podcast. Hey, welcome to the Minefield, program about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Lead Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hey, Scott. Hey, Waleed. How are you doing? Uh, well, why did you pause there? Did you think I had something up my sleeve I wasn't no, throwing you direction? <laughs> I was just thinking. No, no, no. no. I, I, was, I was just thinking. There used to be this thing back in the day when there were LPs. What do you mean when they were? Uh, they've, they've roared back. They, they, they have roared back, but it's a, it's a self-conscious and I think probably in the end self-defeating gesture towards a degree of nostalgia. Look, I, I would love with that. Look, I love the sound of LPs. Yeah. I love the feel of LPs. I love the aesthetics of LPs, mm-hmm. but they are so prohibitively expensive that it ends up taking something which really was available to all, I think, in a very real way. And it makes it something that then becomes almost a form of quasi-elite nostalgia mm. for, for purely aesthetic reasons. No, I disagree. I know, I know what you're saying. saying. I think there's something to I what you're saying. LPs. I no, actually love LPs. But what interests me is how many sort of current acts release them. Yeah, it's true. There's something happening there. Now, it may well be that it's a different kind of, a kind of cultural elitism that you could point to or whatever. I don't know it would be a financial elitism in a lot of those cases, because I don't think there's necessarily acts or audiences that are particularly flush with money, but no, it's kind true. of a commitment to the idea of music and, and the form of the, one thing I love about the LP is that you are compelled to get up after 20 minutes and change the side. That's right. That's right. And so it's almost like it prevents you or chides you for passive listening. Because you're oh, going to have to do something. That's right. right? You, That's exactly don't right. Don't walk away too far. You're going to have to come back and flip this thing over, right? Yeah. You can't just leave it and forget about it for an hour. So, and I, I think there's a whole lot of stuff baked into that that is part of what the resurgence of LPs is grasping Wonderful. at. Wonderful. I love I mean? that. I love that, Waleed. And look, the other thing that I love, okay, let me begin with one thing I love and one thing that I hate. I hate when you're listening unsuspectingly on your Bluetooth headset. Yeah. And the album comes to the end, especially I, I listen to more, I don't like saying classical music, but Bach and Chopin and Schubert are more my sort of constant companions. I love that you don't companions. want to classical music. No, because it's, it's not, not specific classical. That's stupid. It's stupid. No, no, it's just, classical music is a stupid description of music that people don't understand anyway. So anyway, what I hate is you, you get to the end. There's nothing elitist about this at all. Go you on, get go. to the end of, of Schubert's impromptus and then suddenly you're listening to something else that iTunes has just decided it's going to bump you on to. Anyway, I mean, I, I hate that, the sort of the passivity yep. leading over into, okay, it's spoon-feeding me something else that thinks that I'm going to like. That's something I hate. What I love, though, is the moment of imperfection at the beginning, the moment of compulsory imperfection at the beginning of first dropping the needle onto the LP. Yeah. I love the crackle. I love the enforced reminder that this is not a perfect piece of music. This is not a flawless recording. Because I think one of the things that really sucks about so much modern music is the extent to which it has been so... Uh, modified, perfected, technologically mediated. Oftentimes, no real musicians are even necessarily involved in the production of the particular music. And then every time you hear the music, it's going to be exactly the same every single time as a matter of enforcement. One of the things that I've always loved, I mean, I'm not as much of a fan of the Beatles as you are, much more of a fan of Bob Dylan, 
you're never going to hear the same Bob Dylan song twice. It could be exactly the same song, but it's never going to be the same way twice. And Mm. I love those moments of enforced imperfection, of performed virtuosity to remind you that there is something actually performed and necessarily imperfect about this magnificent piece of art that you're just about to indulge in. We need to do a show on this. Sounds like we are. I mean, should we just inform the guests that they're going to have to pivot? (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't think this has... I mean, I'm fascinated to see how you bring this to the topic of today. I I think we have started a long, long way from it. We are. And it's going to be wonderful to see you land this. I'm not necessarily actually landing this in terms of the topic. I was just going to say there used to be these things when there were such things as LPs as B-sides. Yeah. And often often B-sides were kind of the the not exactly the outtakes. I mean, you could say that the Beatles released three consecutive albums of simply outtakes of simply imperfect sort of studio rehearsals. What would you say those um, albums were? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's cuz you don't want to things... own up to that outrageous statement. <laughs> I mean, maybe One the white things... album, I'm assuming you're including that. One of the things that oh, I think we should maybe so release about this. Go on. One of these days is minefield B-sides or minefield (laughs) outtakes because we were having the most ludicrous conversation before it went to air, before the recording mechanism began. (laughs) That is just going to make one of these, it may or may not make one of these glorious minefield episodes one of these days. It's the gem of an idea. It's a perfect little nugget uh, that may well or may well not see the light of day. But I think that there have been a whole lot of things over the seven years we've been doing this show that have been ideas, that have been little nuggets, little gems that I don't think we've necessarily followed up on. Sometimes we have, but wouldn't it be nice to gather them together and to have 45 minutes of little five-minute snippets of (laughs) half-baked ideas? I I just think that would be glorious. As as long as people took it in that spirit, because what you might find is they sound exactly like what you've described. (laughs) (laughs) Namely, half-baked ideas. Yes. That'd be good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's, so a, there's to, a very good reason we didn't discuss that. At yeah, one. that's right. So uh, today's topic, I would like to think, isn't half-baked. No, it's not. And I'm confident in saying that because when I suggested it to you, quite rarely, I would say, for you, you just went, I love it. Yeah. I was quietly <laughs> chuffed that you leapt on this straight away. So do you want to deliver it well, us to it? Well, let, let me explain, though, just so people don't think that I'm just a curmudgeon or a perpetual grump. Oftentimes you have these, like, that's not fair that I rarely say that your ideas are good ideas. No, but you rarely leap on them like that. Well, I may, have to maybe. control you. Usually I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Usually what it is is I'm thinking, how on earth do we turn that into a topic that a guest would be interested in talking about, that people would be interested in listening to, and that can extend for 53 minutes? That's that's usually what I'm thinking about. So if if I have those moments of enthusiasm, it's because I can immediately imagine the guest. I can immediately imagine the shape of the show and the idea of it lasting for 53 minutes is no concern whatsoever. Excellent. We're talking about political U-turns. Now, I think there's a certain disparity. There's a certain disjunction that is part and parcel, that is an essential aspect of political life or of life within a representative democracy. Um, There have been a good many politicians who have had to live with a degree of separation between convictions that they might have and the performance of their public duties. Um, There are all sorts of names for this. In other words, I might be someone who is deeply morally opposed to warfare, to war fighting, and I might be committed 
to various forms of rigorous nonviolence. And yet I might find myself in the cabinet of a government that's just pledged itself to going to war. I might even find myself in a very unusual circumstance as the uh, Secretary of Defense mm. or Minister for you know, Armed Services or whatever. Which is um, not, not so, a U-turn in the classical sense, I wouldn't say. No, 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 it's not. But there is a disjunction between the private and between the public performance of duties. One of my favorite U.S. presidents of the 20th century, Lyndon Johnson, was someone who, by all accounts, nurtured views, prejudices, that by any reckoning could be classified as, as racially jaundiced, if not racially contemptuous. And yet he mm. is a president who superintended and shepherded through the passage of epoch-making civil rights legislation. So you have those disjunctions between the private and the public. And I think maybe we, we give the private, the private convictions, maybe we weigh those a bit too heavily. For me, one of the things that's probably more important is the integrity and the consistency of the performance of public duties, not so much uh, the moral roiling that's going on underneath. So you have that disjunction between the public and the private. I think that's a disjunction that is essential to politics. I, I, I really do, which is why politics can't be ethically measured in the same way that we would measure other vocations, other performances. If it happened in any other vocation, this kind of dis disjunction between public duties and private convictions, you could legitimately call that person a hypocrite and probably be justified in doing that. But then there's another disjunction, and this is the disjunction we're talking about today. And that's not so much between the private individual or the individual convictions and the public performance of duty, but between what the political leader or the political figure said in the past and what they're saying in the present. In other words, the disjunction is between two versions of the same politician. A politician, for instance, let's take John Howard, who in 1995 pledged that the coalition would never, ever reintroduce a broad-based goods and services tax mm. because uh, such a tax had been taken to the 1993 election and voters had roundly repudiated yes. it. Yeah. But then in 1997, as prime minister, he introduced uh, the coalition's plans to introduce precisely such a tax. Now, what, what's really interesting to me, and I think this may be one of those exceptions not one of the exceptions, but it may well be an exemplary instance. He then took that reversal of his position to an election in yeah. 1998. Yeah. And to my mind, that was vital. So it wasn't just a disjunction. It wasn't just, I said this at one stage, I'm saying something else now. It's, this is the case for it. Let me put it to a vote. I think there's something really, really important about that. Yeah, which is the opposite of the Julia Gillard case, right? Yes. Why don't yeah. you take that up? Well, just that she can't. Because people might not remember. Well, you, really? you don't know the Do demographic you of really audience. really think people won't remember? <laughs> Come on. Go I mean, on, give it to we us. We were beaten over the head with it for three years, weren't we? Um, for three years, relentlessly. Yes. Even our non-Australian listeners will probably have heard of it. So relentless was the beating. But um, so Julia Gillard in the 2010 election campaign says there will be yep. no carbon tax under a government that I lead. Uh, it's a hung parliament. Both sides scramble to form a minority government. And in her or Labor's negotiations with the crossbenchers, as they were, the Greens and a couple of independents ended up agreeing to introduce something that technically wasn't a carbon tax, but that mm. she was actually quite happy to describe as a carbon tax. Yep. Uh, and just blatantly admitted, yes, I've walked away from, <laughs> from this promise. I, it was characterised as a lie, which I think is untrue. I don't think she... I think that's right. ...was mm. 
I don't think when she said there will be no carbon tax, she intended to introduce one. A circumstance, I think, led her to, and we can have an argument about mm-hmm. whether or not the circumstances actually meant that that was necessary for her to do or not. But um, I think there was a circumstantial change. But it definitely was a U-turn. Not a backflip, can I say, because as has been pointed out to me, once you do a backflip, you end up facing, facing the, same the same direction, direction. <laughs> that you started in. But So U-turn is better. Um, it was definitely a U-turn. <laughs> However, she didn't take that U-turn to another election. She came out the other side of an election with that U-turn as mm-hmm. policy, yes. which was then eventually passed, and she lost her job before uh, within the party room before Labor was resoundingly defeated at the 2013 election. Yeah. That's my summary. Beautifully put. Yeah. Um, something that our mutual friend Paul Strangio has pointed out, and I think this is a really important thing to keep in mind, that while there's a high degree of scrutiny that's often, you know, that that these U-turns are subjected to, submitted to. What we often don't reflect enough on is the circumstances of the original pledge. So it may well be that a politician says something, then goes back on it. And yes, it might be changing circumstances, but it's not really, is it, can it really be called a lie? Can it really be called hypocrisy? It may well be that the purpose of the original declaration, in John Howard's instance, knowing that the coalition was broadly in favor of a broad-based goods and services tax, that there was something there was something about the declaration that it was dead that was meant to allay the electorate's fears and therefore get it in a fairly smooth way to the position of electorability. You yeah. could say exactly the same thing about Julia Gillard's declaration that there'll be a carbon because labor's rolling back of that policy position had done such damage to her predecessor kevin rudd and it was such a toxic issue among many quarters of the electorate for good reasons and bad for noble reasons and ignoble let's say that it may well be that the original there was if there is a fault it's in the original declaration a way of maybe shortcutting the process of winning trust with the electorate by saying something that one probably that goes far too roughly against the grain of where that party stands. And therefore, there's really no choice, but in some circumstances, especially when foreseeable circumstances uh, necessitated for there to be a walking back of that original declaration. So it's, I mean, it's a really, really, really complicated issue. Now, that brings us to Scott Morrison. So you've got John Howard on the one hand, who I think if you're going to change your political position, that's the way to do it. Yeah. You've got Julia Gillard, who I think you're right. There was a kind of political necessity. There's almost a parliamentary calculus that, I mean, she may may well have been incredibly sincere in what she said during the 2010 election campaign, but that simply didn't hold over into the, the electoral realities after that went after the election. Hmm. How would you characterize what Scott Morrison has done over the course of the last three years? I mean, that's a very big question. Should we? It's a very. Big should question. we pick up perhaps the singular hook that led us to this week's episode, which yes, is please. the electric car U-turn? I think that's the one we're yeah. talking about, right? Is there, is there anything yeah, else? You want well, to... well, I mean, the, the electric cars, given the hay that he made over electric cars taking away Australians' weekends during the 2019 election campaign. I think that's part of it. But I think the other big part of it is the coalition's wholehearted, well, wholehearted, it's public embrace of net zero emission by by 2050 targets in the lead up to the Glasgow. um, I'd say anything but wholehearted. 
Um, yes, yes, but but it was. Let's just put it that this way: it was done in a full-throated way, and the prime minister didn't then do anything that would give the impression that he was walking back or that he was changing positions. Well, what he tends to do in these circumstances is to impress or to give the sense that what he's saying now is in a kind of secret or even a cult continuity with what he's always done, with what he's always... Yeah, because circumstances what he's have believed. changed or, yeah. or sometimes I just never said that, which, yes, is, right. which is why the electric car example I think was so interesting. It was the denial of something that was eminently provable on the public record just by playing grabs from as recently as two and a half years ago, which I, yeah, I mean, it's a truly remarkable feat to, to try to pull that off. But Is it though? See, I, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think I'm so. not sure about this. Well, I mean, yes, in some respects it is remarkable. I think, I, I, think, I, I think the less remarkable moment, response though. would be yeah. to say, yeah, in 2019, I said this and that was absolutely right. Because the circumstances were so different. But as the evidence changes and the circumstances change, you change your position. That's what grown-ups do. And you run it that way, right? Mm. But, but the fact that he sort of ran that, but he, but he went further. That. I, I think that is remarkable. There aren't many political leaders who do that, especially in an age where everything is so documented. Anyway, sorry, what was your yeah. mo- well, moment? I was just going to say there's that really kind of discomforting moment in Catherine Murphy's last quarterly essay, The End of Certainty where the prime minister says to her that he has what's called a flow brain, which is he is completely immersed in the moment, that he devotes himself to complete concentration, a kind of intense reflection on what the precise circumstances now demand. And in order to find the solution, he'll give himself entirely to what the moment demands. In other words, what he's kind of saying is in some respects the opposite. Remember the show we did earlier this year? on promise keeping and the continuity of the moral self. Uh, Should one be bound in one's present by promises that one makes in one's past? What the prime minister is kind of saying here is that the circumstances of problem solving, his commitment to, and I think it probably is worth saying, that he is committed to to non-ideological politics. He, He just doesn't strike me as being someone who's ideologically committed in the same way that, say, Tony Abbott was. Um, In his commitment to non-ideological politics, in his utter focus on the circumstances, the demands of the moment, he will give himself wholly to a particular sentiment, to a particular line of thought, and then seemingly to his mind without contradiction, he can say in the future that he was no longer bound by what he might have said at that particular moment. Now, I have certain moral objections to that. I have certain political objections to that. But it's not entirely clear to me that he sees himself in those moments as necessarily either lying or contradicting himself. Yeah, and that may well be true. I believe that's Sean Kelly's argument in his recently released book about Scott Morrison, that it's not really lying. It's um, in every moment he believes what he's saying. Uh, Okay, for for minefield purposes, I'm less interested in the question of lying or promise-breaking to oneself, and I'm more interested in the question of the whole civic apparatus that surrounds a U-turn, right? Hmm. So it seems interesting. Two things are interesting to me. One is that in the case of the Scott Morrison U-turn on, or the coalition U-turn, we should say, on electric vehicles, there's something about it that, uh, that sort of irritates and it's worth identifying what that is. And I would argue in this particular instance, not in all instances of U-turns, but in this particular instance, it's this sense that the original statement was a disingenuous one. 
So not mm-hmm. the new statement at which he arrives, but the original statement about Labor's electric vehicle policy is going to um, kill the weekend. Electric vehicles are basically duds. Um, was kind of the atmospherics of of what they were arguing. It was in the midst of an election campaign. They were doing what political parties do, I guess, which is misrepresent the other side's policy. Um, but it, there was sort of a sense, even at the time I remember, there's sort of a sense that this was just a bit bonkers, wasn't it? It was just going a bit far by taking on a policy that no, just did not need to be remotely so offensive and trying to cast it as, you know, the, the end of of Australian culture in, in mm. some way. And so the disingenuousness of the original position is what makes the U-turn notable and the sort of, the, just the brazenness of it, the sort of, no, I never said that. I was like, well, you did and it was kind of remarkable at the time and it it's even more remarkable now that you walk away from it. The other dimension of it that I find interesting is, okay, so as citizens, what's the appropriate response from us when a mm. politician does a U-turn? Because the, I can tell you what the journalistic response is, and that is, aha, you did a U-turn, and now we will prosecute that and try to shame you over the fact that you've done a U-turn, which strikes me as not a very, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I, I suppose it's noteworthy, and there needs to be some mechanism of accountability for politicians so they can't just simply change their position on the basis of political convenience and get away with that. But on the other hand, it strikes me as not civically very helpful because surely what we want to preserve in our political culture is the ability of politicians, even leaving aside this particular example, but the ability of politicians to adjust their position, to change their mind, to do U-turns because that's a good policy decision in the circumstances and not punish them for it. And, and if I can just add to that, and give them the cover to do that without losing face. Well, that's what it's all about, right? Because, yes, because yes, it, it is. Because if the cost of a U-turn is made so high that no one dared do it, then I don't think any polity benefits from that. It, mm, it, it can only be right. a worse outcome. Now, in this particular example, it gets interesting, right? Because I think part of the reason that it, it gnaws at people is that the U-turn was performed but not acknowledged. (laughs) What U-turn? What do you mean? I was always facing this direction. And that that irritates, this sense of kind of, how can you expect me to go along with that, right? But at the same time, I wonder, and this may be being overly charitable to Scott Morrison in this particular instance, but I wonder if, uh, have we in some ways created the imperative for politicians to do that? Yeah. Because... Admitting the U-turn becomes such a painful enterprise that you're actually better off just digging in and denying it ever happened. In the same way as Julia Gillard, when she introduces what she is happy to describe as the carbon tax, says, yes, I made a promise, I've walked away from that. I found it really refreshing in a way that she said, yep, I'm not even going to have a fight about whether I've broken a promise, I'm just going to admit that. And then that was the end of her prime ministerial career, really. Right. So the price of being honest in that context seems to me so high that maybe we've created an environment where we are forcing politicians to do these things that leave us incredulous and then we get upset about it. Two questions for you. Am I being overly generous to Scott Morrison in raising that idea? And secondly, even if I am, is it an important idea for us to acknowledge like a kind of truth that is built into our system, even if it doesn't fully apply in this case? 
Yeah. Look, just really quickly, and I'm very eager to to, to get to our guest on this because sure. um, I think she's going to be exceptional. I don't think you're being overly generous. I mean, I do think that truth in public speech matters. And I think when we relinquish our mutual commitment to truth in public speech and when we create the conditions in which truth in public speech is either impossible or uh, or not expected. Or too costly. Then I think, yeah. yes, too, too, too costly. Then I, I think we all lose. We all lose. Uh, it's just also worth saying, though, and this probably goes more to your second point, that there is a kind of duplicity, though, in our responses to backflips. Because on the one hand, if we like the policy, the response tends to be, well, it took you long enough. And we then still that, want to it punish took you long though. enough. We still want to and punish. we still want to punish them. That's exactly right. And then it becomes, uh, why didn't you do this sooner? Uh, what are the circumstances that have changed that have meant that you've done? And then beneath that, of course, is the kind of cynical, the, it's electoral realities that have kind of compelled you to this. And then if we don't like the policy, then we charge them with hypocrisy. And I think on both counts, what that neglects is the very particular form of ethics that is internal to political representation. And because we want to prosecute people and because there's a fair degree of, of kind of joy in the shaming of politicians who have been, quote unquote, caught out. Um, I think there's a there's a form of quasi moral contemptuousness uh, that the media uh, and sections of the public then engage in that just is is frankly naive when it comes to the the, the moral realities, the ethical realities that are internal to public uh, to political representation. Now, look, none of that is to say that I think lies and kind of ease with the truth matters in public life. I, I don't think these things should just be washed away. I don't mm-hmm. think we should just give ourselves over to the kind of, you know, to the ever present now of political spin. Um, but I do think that a recognition of just what it is that is demanded of politicians should give us that sense that not only do we need to cultivate the conditions within which political U-turns, political about faces can happen, but we need to then give politicians the cover to be able to say what really happened that led them to that point and then for them to be able to do so uh, without thereby the cost that's inflicted being too much and then being made to lose face. I don't think anybody wins from that and I think it's positively destructive to political well-being in the process. Mm. You are listening to The Minefield. If you've uh, been listening on the radio, you've just joined us. That's what the show is called. You can listen to the show on RN as you might be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Well, we shot for the stars in our guest for this episode. Robin Eckersley is Redmond Berry Distinguished Professor of Political Science at University of Melbourne. Robin, it's wonderful to have you at long last on the minefield. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Um, so it seems to me that one of the things that we do habitually on this show is we try to make careful distinctions between things. Uh, so something might seem good and bad, but if you parse the differences out a little bit more carefully, you can see that goodness and badness runs oftentimes in between the categories rather than just between two poles of it. So I'm not going to ask you a question. Where do you think we ought to kind of place the emphasis, place the stress when it comes to our politicians coming to a position where they feel like they have to reverse track, to reverse a particular policy position in order to meet the realities of a particular moment? Where do you think we ought to place the emphasis in that? 
Well, to answer this question, we really have to locate these decisions in context. So if you want to say, when is it okay to do a U-turn as distinct from a backflip? And clearly, you wouldn't want to do this very early after an election where you've campaigned on something. Uh, that would really be breaking the trust with voters. However, as time goes by, if there's a changing context, new information or a national emergency, and it's quite clear that the public are wanting this change, then it's okay for politicians to be truthful, to do what Julia Gillard did, acknowledge the U-turn and provide public reasons why they think it's really appropriate that they change. And so in this way, you're acknowledging that to electors. You're being truthful with them and you're trying to then push towards this what seems to be a shared purpose. But it's not okay when you do it immediately after an election, when it's clearly just pure opportunism, uh, where you're, you're really just um, point scoring. And if I could just say what you're saying about Gillard, I'd just like to make a, a brief correction there because when she blurted out that she would not um, introduce a carbon tax, she was put off guard. It was in a radio interview and it wasn't mm, that's right. anything that the Labor Party had discussed. In, in fact, Greg Combey, who was the Minister for Climate Change at the time, didn't hear about it till much, much later. And it was, um, it's just that the opposition made merry with it and put Labor in a very awkward position. So it wasn't something that Labor expressed strong conviction behind and tried to make merry with it. It was something that was turned on them. And she just had to deal with it. She could have dealt with it in a number of ways. She could have said, we're introducing an emissions trading scheme, not a carbon tax, if you've done Economics 101. But she just caved in quite quickly. So her advocacy wasn't very good there. But it was quite different to Howard who made a big thing of not introducing it, but then, as you say, did the right thing in campaigning on it and trying to win a mandate on it. I, I think that might let Gillard off a little lightly there because I wasn't aware it was in a radio interview. I definitely remember seeing over and over a television grab. So if it was in a radio interview, then she said it more than once. That's it, when she first said it. Right, but then she yeah. obviously said it several times. If, yes. if both of our recollections are correct then she must have said it more than once. But also the context for that was Kevin Rudd had ditched an ETS. She had taken over from Kevin Rudd. She was then, at least on one reading, too very reluctant or hesitant to announce a serious climate policy. You might actually remember, this is one of my favourite bits of Australian trivia, political history trivia, that she went to the election with a citizens' assembly on yes, climate change, that. which was an odd sort of, it, it was a policy not to have a policy, but to outsource it to this assembly that would then work on a policy and arrive at a conclusion that kind of seemed predetermined, but wasn't explicit. It was a very strange thing. It read very much like someone who didn't want to make a pronouncement on climate change. Um, she had clearly picked up that there was opposition to an ETS. And so the statement, there will be no carbon tax under a government that I lead, was clearly calculated to reassure so, I t yes, you're absolutely right that the coalition ran with it and made hay with it, probably beyond its import. Now, with a fair degree of bad faith, I should say. Yes, a lot of bad yeah. faith. So, yeah. no doubt about that. We're not having an argument about that. But I don't think we can quite wave it away as a position that wasn't really a position. I think there, was a, there were reasons that she said it that were to do with the way Labor had snookered itself on policy and also the message that she was trying to send to placate obviously a significant enough section of the electorate that she was worried about it. And 
But I think what is interesting about the Gillard example is she does what you say you shouldn't do, which is immediately after an election change the position. She does it for reasons that are clearly about political expedience in the sense that they're about forming government, which, you know, is that expedient or is that something bigger than that? I suppose we can have a taxonomical argument about that. But the thing that is interesting about Gillard, I find, is she in a way gets punished for being too upfront and honest about it. Which is kind of what I think you're gesturing at, Robin. You know. That- yeah. Yes, but we also need to think more about this thing called a political mandate. On the one hand, you know, we can interpret it as a solemn promise to the electorate, and that what you campaign on is almost like a quasi-contractual obligation that you must fulfil if elected. But you need to think about it in the round because our parties campaign on a whole diversity of policies. And they give different strengths and commitments to those policies. There's also a range of reasons lying behind the preferences of electors that might not have anything to do with the policies that are claimed to be the core to the mandate. And if a a mandate's given, seen to give a right to rule in a particular way, then a government can become incredibly inflexible and absolutely deaf to criticism and change circumstances, including treaty commitments. And often a mandate is imposed retrospectively on an electoral campaign where they pick on issues that weren't really prominent. So there's a whole lot of uh, issues with mandates where we have to tread quite carefully. But when you've got a situation where you've got a very active and strong campaign where there's a pointy end to it, it's clear for all to see, then the worst thing for a government is to do a U-turn on that quite early in their term. That's an absolute no-no. But if it's buried a little bit more and it's later in the term and and circumstances have changed, then a democracy demands that there be revision and provision and a debate that the provisional decision has changed and there's revisability because democracy is all about revisability. Mm. So how would you then assess the coalitions you turn on electric vehicles. I mean, it wasn't a major theme in the election campaign. We probably forgot about it until the U-turn was performed. We went, oh my God, remember that? Um, It was not immediately after an election. It's actually in the lead up to a new election. So you probably will get to vote on it. At the same time, it's just so brazen. (laughs) No, this is a good case. This is exhibit A on the the situation of what is a U-turn. And I agree with you. It's what's so irksome about it, it, as you put it, Waleed, it's is the disingenuousness of the original statement. And in the case of our Prime Minister, um, because he lives in the moment, we never know from one moment to the next who he is. To have a stable identity requires some degree of continuity over time. So you can get a sense of some degree of predictability. But when you absolutely live in the present and you're focusing on winning an argument from day to day, then it's a very different kettle of fish. And it's even more concerning when our politics starts to have that character of post-truthiness because then we're losing the epistemic virtues of democracy where you can actually have some shared public facts which are a basis for disagreement and reasoned argument. That starts to slip away completely because winning becomes more important than truthfulness and continuity or standing for anything. And this is when I think we, we need to be concerned about the state of our democracy. And we're, I think, edging in that post-truthiness t- direction. If you've just joined us, you are listening to The Minefield. You can listen to the show on the radio. You might be doing that right now. We exist as a podcast as well. Our guest for this week is Robin Eckersley, is Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of Melbourne.
I think that's a really important distinction, Robin. And I do think, I mean, one of the things that politics shares, especially democratic politics shares, I think, with any understanding of the moral life rightly considered, is that a significant part of it is about the cultivation of the conditions within which parties can understand one another and take one another seriously. In other words, a huge aspect of both the moral of moral theory and of political life is about the cultivation of conditions of trust. And I think this is, you know, there is something virtuosic, there is something extraordinary and even in many respects impressive about the way that our prime minister has moved so easily uh, through even PR, to say nothing about political disasters that probably would have felled anyone else. And that the kind of the heedlessness, the reticence to ever look back has been an essential part of that. I, I agree with you entirely that it's, it, it's trust, the cultivation of trust that ultimately is the, is, is the great casualty of that particular mode of doing politics. I wonder about another distinction, though, and that I think, I mean, it is striking to me the way that the net zero emissions target by 2050 was pushed for by one side of the coalition and then embraced in the lead up to Glasgow without, again, any recognition of the previous pledges on the part of the coalition to Australia's fossil fuel future and a, a commitment, I should say, that has been reiterated now in the aftermath of Glasgow. So it may well be that Glasgow is also one of those moments uh, that is now sort of uh, forgotten once it's done. I'm just wondering about this distinction. You mentioned it very briefly before in the form of treaties. So when a certain obligation is imposed on a politician who has received electoral approbation, if we don't want to refer to it as a mandate, but then that politician exists within a network of other obligations, not just to global treaties and global forms of cooperation, but also, we should say, to the future. I'm just wondering how are short-term political promises or stunts that are aimed at a solidly domestic constituency and that are made in very particular moments for maximal political advantage, how can they then be meaningfully walked back when the electorate is then given a full sense of the broader political obligations within which that leader necessarily exists? No, they're great questions. Um, I mean, one could be cynical here and say that the Prime Minister probably felt he had to go to the G20 summit on the eve of COP26 and said, well, I may as well swing by Glasgow. I need something to carry and net zero mm. will be what I'll carry and market as if that's sufficient to give him a ticket to Glasgow. But it shows a complete lack of understanding of, of what was at stake at Glasgow and also a carelessness about it. He just doesn't care about what's at stake. Because if you read the government's statement, it's actually the Minister for Emissions Reductions, they actually say, the first thing they say is that they welcome the finalisation of the Paris rulebook, but the government will always stand up for and make decisions in Australia's national interest, and we will do what's right for rural and regional communities. So you have to ask, who on earth or what was the government representing when they went to Glasgow, and it was rural, certain electorates in certain rural and regional communities. And that was their, that was what they brought to the international stage, which is really quite extraordinary because we know that all political representatives face a whole lot of tensions. They're in a washing machine as to who they represent, their electorate, 
um, their party, their country, and so forth. But prime ministers are a special category. They have to represent the entire nation state on the world stage, uh, whereas here we saw it reduced to, quote, rural and regional Australia in a brazen way that was unapologetic. So this is, this is a first. I've never seen this in my history of cop watching, and I've also been to six of them, so it's quite extraordinary. So that is a puzzle. And clearly it's a case of using the, the international stage as a platform to speak to certain electorates in, in this country. But we say that like that's not what all mm. international leaders do in international policy all the time. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe I just haven't been paying enough attention, but I don't know how to understand American foreign policy except through the local politics of very particular electorates. Like there, there is a reason that America's policy on Cuba, for example, has been the way it's been for so long. And it has everything to do with... Florida. Yeah. yeah. And the attitude of electorally important Latino communities in Florida. Um, there's, there's a reason that its policy on the Middle East has been the way that it's been. And the, the fact that those two policies have no real philosophical consistency between them. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking in too abstract a way, but my, my theory on climate change is the reason we find it insoluble is that the job of every national leader is to represent locality and they're trying to solve a global problem that doesn't respect that locality. And so we have a problem of this kind of structural contradiction in politics. Um, but the mere fact of a government doing that, of going on the international stage with local concerns, I don't know, I, I don't... I don't mean to overstate it, but I will. Um, it seems to me that's that's all that leaders really, national leaders do. Like that's what they do all the time, isn't it? I, what, what am I well, overlooking there? You're overlooking the fact that different countries have different uh, international role conceptions. And so um, there are some countries where their foreign policy is something that they agree to in the parliament across the board so they can maintain stability in a particular foreign policy stance. And I've done a close uh, study of Norway comparing to Australia. They're both fossil fuel countries. Norway has an international role conception of doing good in the world. They've got really high overseas development assistance. And, that, and this is persistent through time. So there's a continuity there despite change of governments. Whereas in countries like Australia and the US, in the US it's usually the Senate that's the tail wagging the dog, which is why successive presidents that want to do action on climate change have to resort to their executive powers. Mm. In Australia, we flip-flop between in the national interest and good international citizenship unless it conflicts with our national interest. Yeah, we're a national interest is, country. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There are some countries that can be shamed and some that can't be shamed. Russia can never be shamed. Scandinavian countries, Germany, certain Northern European countries can be shamed. So this is, I think, an interesting puzzle to understand why some countries are much more brazen about not uh, about being really um, inward-looking. But, but I feel like, I mean, maybe we're doing a different podcast or a different show now, so, but, um, <laughs> but, I, but I feel like the Norway example would only be relevant and comparable if Norway had d tensions in its domestic politics about these things and was it a does. big enough and diverse enough country that serious swathes of, of the country were going to be disenfranchised 
in a really significant way based on a particular foreign policy stance in the way that happens in America all the time. Like if, if, if the electoral, if the domestic politics was such in Norway, wouldn't you see a very different approach to foreign policy? Not necessarily, because Norway is incredibly dependent on gas and oil, and there's a huge employment in that area. The difference is that um, by setting a really hard target for themselves, the Norwegians have wriggled out of it by paying, you know, through offsetting and, and sinking money in overseas to delay that transition locally. So I'm not saying there aren't contradictions in Norway, but they still feel the necessity to aim high and then come up with more um, slightly disingenuous ways of fulfilling their duty, although the Lutheran streak in Norwegian politics has seen certain many parties say we shouldn't pay other people to do our dirty work. Mm. But certainly the Labor Party has, you know, with a huge number of the unions in gas and oil industry, have have tried to find other ways of meeting emission reductions rather than so, know, phase out the, so oil, the, menu's, the oil industry. Di- the menu is different, but the meal's the same, right? Yes, but there's this compulsion to still do the right thing and then to figure out a way of dealing with it. We don't even have that compulsion. In fact, there seems to be a, a sense that a pride that we, we do what we say, so we don't aim high and anyone else who does is a hypocrite. Yeah, which is very much a line that the current government is is using. On U-turns then, I mean, it's easy, and I'm kind of resistant to this, but it's easy to look at politicians and say, look at the cynicism and the hypocrisy on display. What, what do you make of the other side of the coin? What about us? Is there something wrong in the way that we interact with U-turns? In other words, I kind of, I, I kind of wonder if we're in a nuclear disarmament type situation here where we will not abandon our cynicism of politicians because we assume the cynicism in their behaviour and they will behave in a way that's cynical because they assume that we will punish them for doing anything else at the electorate. You know, the, the virtuous politician simply is the one who loses the election. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what always happens. So it's easy to pot politicians. Should we be potting ourselves? Well, we certainly expect too much of them, given that they're in a washing machine or rather they're pulled in so many different directions. We know that politicians are amongst the most reviled profession, and it is a profession. Um, But when you think about what they have to do, uh, we should be perhaps a little more forgiving. And when you think of the nature of political representation, it's a hornet's nest because politicians have to be responsible to their electorate sort of like a delegate, you know, where they're representing them as an agent. They also have to play the role of a trustee by, you know, standing for the country as a whole. They have to be dutiful to their party because they'll they'll risk pre-selection. And for the prime minister as well, they have this um, responsibility to represent us abroad. And so, you know, there's also the requirement that they should be like us and have the common touch and mirror the people in some way, mm. some type of common identity. And we see Scott Morrison trying to do that with the Daggy Dad routine mm. um, and his rugby team. So we can't be delegates, trustees and mirrors um, to our electorate, um, to the country at large, to our party and so forth all at once. It's impossible. Mm. And yet we expect them to be one type of thing and they can't be the other. So, yeah, we definitely need to be um, much more forgiving But we also need to think about the huge historical changes to the nature of party politics over the last 100 years. Parties used to be vehicles with mass membership 
where members had a role in policy formation and there was real loyalty to the party. But membership has just been steadily declining. Politics has become much more professionalised and um, a lot increasing number of voters are just opting out of politics. They just find the whole thing too ghastly to watch. And this is really sad because democracy needs vigilance. It, it has no means of preventing its self-destruction other than vigilance on the part of citizens. And we're seeing that going down the gurgler, um, not entirely, but starting to slip down there. And this is really concerning for any anyone who is a Democrat. And so what we're looking at is just part of a broader picture of increasing disillusionment with democratic systems. And whereas in the 90s it was the heyday of democratic growth, we're now seeing deconsolidation and decline in the Western liberal heartland, which is really concerning. It just strikes me that one of the most catastrophic things then, Robin, that's happened over the last, I mean, this has been in full sway, certainly if we believe the testimony of, say, really perceptive political journalists like Henry Fairley in the United States and the UK, you know, this has been in full swing since the early 1970s this kind of uh, a public disdain for political figures and also you know, the belief that there is no profession, quite simply, that is lower, more base than that of the politician. It seems to me that it's almost become the duty of a categorical imperative that democratic publics need to give up on that self-serving, self-satisfied disdain for politicians. I guess the, 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 the two things that all this leaves me you know, sort of uh, more convinced of than ever is democratic publics do need to give politicians the ability to walk themselves back from statements that they've made, from pledges that they've made, either wisely or wrongly. There needs to be greater scope, I think, for a degree of foolishness and foolish or light speech within politics without thereby corrupting the conditions within which truth can actually be exchanged and and and, and based on. But I, uh, I guess the, the other thing that, that this really, you know, it, it really is the human dimension, I think, of, of politics that, I mean, uh, this was a big aspect of the prime minister's uh, insistence on going to Glasgow, bearing a net zero by, by 2050 pledge. It was not being maximally shamed on the public stage and then also wanting to hold on to that unwillingness to be shamed within, uh, within the, uh, among the Australian public. It just it, it, it seems to me that I think a greater recognition for just what it is you described it before as a washing machine, but just the ethical tensions that are bound up with the task of representative politics, then placing the emphasis where it should be, which is a recognition about the dirty realism that's involved in politics itself, but also the absolute premium that we place on the cultivation of the conditions of truthful public speech um, so that if something does need to be walked back on, at least it can be done so in a matter that's to some extent truthful or honest. No, those are great comments. And I certainly agree that we need to give a little more space to politicians. But by the same token, I think politicians can make it easier for the public to be more forgiving if they show themselves to be more human. For example, um, if you do... If you are a politician, particularly a leader, where you can see the need for change, I, I, I reckon that just simply explaining to the population that you've changed your mind because the circumstances have changed and you've given full and honest reasons for that, that the public might actually go with you. And um, if you think of the famous lecture by Max Weber called Politics as Vocation, which was given in 2019 on the dawn of the modern era of politics, he said... 1919. 
Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. What did I say? 18, 19, 20, 2019. Um, it could have been 2019. No, no. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> like his. I like his more recent <laughs> stuff. Favor. Yeah. Small, small error. Um, he he said for those uh, for those for whom politics is a vocation, if they're going to be fit for office, they have to believe in something. They have to have what he called an ethics of conviction. They have to have some principles. They can't have none and just seek power for power's sake. The public will see that. By the same token, they also need um, a pure conviction is very dangerous in politics. It can lead to zealotry and it can lead to violence and it needs to be tempered. So for Weber, it needs to be tempered with what he called the ethics of responsibility, which means you have to answer for the foreseeable consequences of your policies. And that means you have to think, you give careful thought to the political um, consequences. So think of... um, Trump and the storming of the Capitol. That's a classic case of a failure to enact those ethics of responsibility. So you can't promise what you can't deliver either. And so these two principles have to work together. And it's a political realist understanding because all of this is about the art of political judgment. And this is never easy. There's so many hard cases that you confront all the time. But I think if you have some measure of conviction then that's really important for the public to believe in you as a human being, not just a politician. And politicians aren't coming across as human beings. Robin, we are very sadly out of time. Thank you so much for lending us your thoughts. I, no doubt that we will um, force you to do this again at some point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are just so many threads to pick up. Um, but so great to have you on The Minefield this week. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Robin Eckersley is Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of Melbourne. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Alas, it is at an end. But we'll see you next week. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.